Chapter 7, Part G of The Wealth of Nations, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 4, Chapter 7, Part G of Colonies. It is thus that the private interests and passions of individuals naturally dispose them to turn their stock towards the employments which in ordinary cases are most advantageous to the society. But if from this natural preference they should turn too much of it towards those employments, the fall of profit in them, and the rise of it in all others, immediately dispose them to alter this faulty distribution. Without any intervention of law, therefore, the private interests and passions of men naturally lead them to divide and distribute the stock of every society among all the different employments carried on in it as nearly as possible in the proportion which is most agreeable to the interest of the whole society. All the different regulations of the mercantile system necessarily derange more or less this natural and most advantageous distribution of stock but those which concern the trade to america and the east indies derange it perhaps more than any other because the trade to those two great continents absorbs a greater quantity of stock than any two other branches of trade the regulations however by which this derangement is effected in those two different branches of trade are not altogether the same monopoly is the great engine of both but it is a different sort of monopoly Monopoly of one kind or another, indeed, seems to be the sole engine of the mercantile system. In the trade to America, every nation endeavors to engross as much as possible the whole market of its own colonies, by fairly excluding all other nations from any direct trade to them. During the greater part of the sixteenth century, the Portuguese endeavored to manage the trade to the East Indies in the same manner, by claiming the sole right of sailing in the Indian seas, on account of the merit of having first found out the road to them. The Dutch still continue to exclude all other European nations from any direct trade to their spice islands. Monopolies of this kind are evidently established against all other European nations, who are thereby not only excluded from a trade to which it might be convenient for them to turn some part of their stock, but are obliged to buy the goods which that trade deals in somewhat dearer than if they could import them themselves directly from the countries which produce them but since the fall of the power of portugal no european nation has claimed the exclusive right of sailing in the indian seas of which the principal ports are now open to the ships of all european nations except in portugal however and within these few years in france the trade to the east indies has in every european country been subjected to an exclusive company monopolies of this kind are properly established against the very nation which erects them the greater part of that nation are thereby not only excluded from a trade to which it might be convenient for them to turn some part of their stock but are obliged to buy the goods which that trade deals in somewhat dearer than if it was open and free to all their countrymen since the establishment of the English East India Company, for example, the other inhabitants of England, over and above being excluded from the trade, must have paid, in the price of the East India goods which they have consumed, not only for the extraordinary profits which the company may have made upon those goods in consequence of their monopoly, but for all the extraordinary waste which the fraud and abuse inseparable from the management of the affairs of so great a company must necessarily have occasioned the absurdity of this second kind of monopoly therefore is much more manifest than that of the first 
both these kinds of monopolies derange more or less the natural distribution of the stock of the society but they do not always derange it in the same way monopolies of the first kind always attract to the particular trade in which they are established a greater proportion of the stock of the society than what would go to that trade of its own accord monopolies of the second kind may sometimes attract stock towards the particular trade in which they are established and sometimes repel it from that trade according to different circumstances in poor countries they naturally attract towards that trade more stock than would otherwise go to it in rich countries they naturally repel from it a good deal of stock which would otherwise go to it such poor countries as sweden and denmark for example would probably have never sent a single ship to the east indies had not the trade been subjected to an exclusive company the establishment of such a company necessarily encourages adventurers their monopoly secures them against all competitors in the home market and they have the same chance for foreign markets with the traders of other nations their monopoly shows them the certainty of a great profit upon a considerable quantity of goods and the chance of a considerable profit upon a great quantity without such extraordinary encouragement the poor traders of such poor countries would probably never have thought of hazarding their small capitals in so very distant and uncertain an adventure as the trade to the east indies must naturally have appeared to them such a rich country as holland on the contrary would probably in the case of a free trade send many more ships to the east indies than it actually does the limited stock of the dutch east india company probably repels from that trade many great mercantile capitals which would otherwise go to it the mercantile capital of holland is so great that it is as it were continually overflowing sometimes into the public funds of foreign countries sometimes into loans to private traders and adventurers of foreign countries sometimes into the most roundabout foreign trades of consumption and sometimes into the carrying trade all near employments being completely filled up all the capital which can be placed in them with any tolerable profit being already placed in them the capital of holland necessarily flows toward the most distant employments the trade to the east indies if it were altogether free would probably absorb the greater part of this redundant capital the east indies offer a market for both the manufactures of europe and for the gold and silver as well as for the several other productions of america greater and more extensive than both europe and america put together every derangement of the natural distribution of stock is necessarily hurtful to the society in which it takes place whether it be by repelling from a particular trade the stock which would otherwise go to it or by attracting towards a particular trade that which would not otherwise come to it if without any exclusive company the trade of holland to the east indies would be greater than it actually is that country must suffer a considerable loss by part of its capital being excluded from the employment most convenient for that port and in the same manner if without an exclusive company the trade of sweden and denmark to the east indies would be less than it actually is or what perhaps is more probable would not exist at all those two countries must likewise suffer a considerable loss by part of their capital being drawn into an employment which must be more or less unsuitable to their present circumstances better for them perhaps in the present circumstances to buy east india goods of other nations even though they should pay somewhat dearer than to turn so great a part of their small capital to so very distant a trade in which the returns are so very slow 
in which that capital can maintain so small a quantity of productive labor at home, where productive labor is so much wanted, where so little is done, and where so much is to do. Though without an exclusive company, therefore, a particular country should not be able to carry on any direct trade to the East Indies, it will not from thence follow that such a company ought to be established there, but only that such a country ought not, in these circumstances, to trade directly to the East Indies. That such companies are not in general necessary for carrying on the East India trade is sufficiently demonstrated by the experience of the Portuguese, who enjoyed almost the whole of it for more than a century together, without any exclusive company. No private merchant, it has been said, could well have capital sufficient to maintain factors and agents in the different ports of the East Indies, in order to provide goods for the ships which he might occasionally send thither, and yet unless he was able to do this the difficulty of finding a cargo might frequently make his ships lose the season for returning and the expense of so long a delay would not only eat up the whole profit of the adventure but frequently occasion a very considerable loss this argument however if it proved anything at all would prove that no one great branch of trade could be carried on without an exclusive company which is contrary to the experience of all nations there is no great branch of trade in which the capital of any one private merchant is sufficient for carrying on all the subordinate branches which must be carried on in order to carry on the principal one but when a nation is ripe for any great branch of trade some merchants naturally turn their capitals towards the principal and some towards the subordinate branches of it and though all the different branches of it are in this manner carried on yet it very seldom happens that they are all carried on by the capital of one private merchant if a nation therefore is ripe for the east india trade a certain portion of its capital will naturally divide itself among all the different branches of that trade some of its merchants will find it for their interest to reside in the east indies and to employ their capitals there in providing goods for the ships which are to be sent out by other merchants who reside in europe the settlements which different european nations have obtained in the east indies if they were taken from the exclusive companies to which they at present belong and put under the immediate protection of the sovereign would render this residence both safe and easy at least to the merchants of the particular nations to whom those settlements belong if at any particular time that part of the capital of any country which of its own accord tended and inclined if i may say so towards the east india trade was not sufficient for carrying on all those different branches of it it would be proof that at that particular time that country was not ripe for that trade and that it would do better to buy for some time even at a higher price from other european nations the east india goods it had occasion for than to import them itself directly from the east indies what it might lose by the high price of those goods could seldom be equal to the loss which it would sustain by the distraction of a large portion of its capital from other employments more necessary or more useful or more suitable to its circumstances and situation than a direct trade to the east indies though the europeans possess many considerable settlements both upon the coast of africa and in the east indies they have not yet established in either of those countries such numerous and thriving colonies as those in the islands and continent of america africa however as well as several of the countries comprehended under the general name of the east indies is inhabited by barbarous nations but those nations were by no means so weak and defenceless as the miserable and helpless americans and in proportion to the natural fertility of the countries which they inhabited they were besides much more populous 
the most barbarous nations either of africa or of the east indies were shepherds even the hottentots were so but the natives of every part of america except mexico and peru were only hunters and the difference is very great between the number of shepherds and that of hunters whom the same extent of equally fertile territory can maintain in africa and the east indies therefore it was more difficult to displace the natives and to extend the european plantations over the greater part of the lands of the original inhabitants the genius of exclusive companies besides is unfavorable it has already been observed to the growth of new colonies and has probably been the principal cause of the little progress which they have made in the east indies the portuguese carried on the trade both to africa and the east indies without any exclusive companies and their settlements at congo angola and benguala on the coast of africa and goa on the east indies though much depressed by superstition and every sort of bad government yet bear some resemblance to the colonies of america and are partly inhabited by portuguese who have been established there for several generations the dutch settlements at the cape of good hope and at batavia are at present the most considerable colonies which the europeans have established either in africa or in the east indies and both those settlements are peculiarly fortunate in their situation the cape of good hope was inhabited by a race of people almost as barbarous and quite as incapable of defending themselves as the natives of america it is besides the half-way house if one may say so between europe and the east indies at which almost every european ship makes some stay both in going and returning the supplying of those ships with every sort of fresh provisions with fruit and sometimes with wine affords alone a very extensive market for the surplus produce of the colonies what the cape of good hope is between europe and every part of the east indies batavia is between the principal countries of the east indies it lies between the most frequented road from Indostan to China and Japan, and is nearly about midway upon that road. Almost all the ships, too, that sail between Europe and China, touch at Batavia, and it is, over and above all this, the centre and principal mart of what is called the country trade of the East Indies, not only of that part of it which is carried on by Europeans, but of that which is carried on by the native Indians, and vessels navigated by the inhabitants of China and Japan, of tonquin malacca cochin china and the island of celebs are frequently to be seen in its port such advantageous situations have enabled those two colonies to surmount all the obstacles which the oppressive genius of an exclusive company may have occasionally opposed to their growth they have enabled batavia to surmount the additional disadvantage of perhaps the most unwholesome climate in the world the english and dutch companies though they have established no considerable colonies except the two above mentioned have both made considerable conquests in the east indies but in the manner in which they both govern their new subjects the natural genius of an exclusive company has shown itself most distinctly in the spice islands the dutch are said to burn all the spiceries which a fertile season produces beyond what they expect to dispose of in europe with such a profit as they think sufficient in the islands where they have no settlements they give a premium to those who collect the young blossoms and green leaves of the clove and nutmeg trees which naturally grow there but which this savage policy has now it is said almost completely extirpated even in the islands where they have settlements they have very much reduced it is said the number of those trees if the produce even of their own islands was much greater than what suited their market the natives they suspect might find means to convey some part of it to other nations 
and the best way they imagine to secure their own monopoly is to take care that no more shall grow than what they themselves carry to market by different arts of oppression they have reduced the population of several of the maluccas nearly to the number which is sufficient to supply with fresh provisions and other necessaries of life their own insignificant garrisons and such of their ships as occasionally come there for a cargo of spices under the government even of the portuguese however those islands are said to have been tolerably well inhabited the english company have not yet had time to establish in bengal so perfectly destructive a system the plan of their government however has had exactly the same tendency it has not been uncommon i am well assured for the chief that is the first clerk of a factory to order a peasant to plough up a rich field of poppies and sow it with rice or some other grain the pretence was to prevent a scarcity of provisions but the real reason to give the chief an opportunity of selling at a better price a large quantity of opium which he had happened then to have upon hand upon other occasions the order has been reversed and a rich field of rice or other grain has been ploughed up in order to make room for a plantation of poppies when the chief foresaw that extraordinary profit was likely to be made by opium the servants of the company have upon several occasions attempted to establish in their own favour the monopoly of some of the most important branches not only of the foreign but of the inland trade of the country had they been allowed to go on it is impossible that they should not at some time or another have attempted to restrain the production of the particular articles of which they had thus usurped the monopoly not only to the quantity which they themselves could purchase but to that which they could expect to sell with such a profit as they might think sufficient in the course of a century or two the policy of the english company would in this manner have probably proved as completely destructive as that of the dutch nothing however can be more directly contrary to the real interest of those companies considered as the sovereigns of the countries which they have conquered than this destructive plan in almost all countries the revenue of the sovereign is drawn from that of the people the greater the revenue of the people therefore the greater the annual produce of their land and labour the more they can afford to the sovereign it is his interest therefore to increase as much as possible that annual produce but if this is the interest of every sovereign it is peculiarly so of one whose revenue like that of the sovereign of bengal arises chiefly from a land rent that rent must necessarily be in proportion to the quantity and value of the produce and both the one and the other must depend upon the extent of the market the quantity will always be suited with more or less exactness to the consumption of those who can afford to pay for it and the price which they will pay will always be in proportion to the eagerness of their competition it is the interest of such a sovereign therefore to open the most extensive market for the produce of his country to allow the most perfect freedom of commerce in order to increase as much as possible the number and competition of buyers and upon this account to abolish not only all monopolies but all restraints upon the transportation of the home produce from one part of the country to another upon its exportation to foreign countries or upon the importation of goods of any kind for which it can be exchanged he is in this manner most likely to increase both the quantity and value of that produce and consequently of his own share of it or of his own revenue but a company of merchants are it seems incapable of considering themselves as sovereigns even after they have become such trade or buying in order to sell again they still consider as their principal business 
and by a strange absurdity regard the character of the sovereign as but an appendix to that of the merchant, as something which ought to be made subservient to it, or by means of which they may be enabled to buy cheaper in India, and thereby to sell with a better profit in Europe. They endeavor, for this purpose, to keep out as much as possible all competitors from the market of the countries which are subject to their government, and consequently to reduce at least some part of the surplus produce of those countries to what is barely sufficient for supplying their own demand, or to what they can expect to sell in Europe with such a profit as they may think reasonable. Their mercantile habits draw them in this manner almost necessarily, though perhaps insensibly, to prefer, upon all ordinary occasions, the little and transitory profit of the monopolist to the great and permanent revenue of the sovereign, and would gradually lead them to treat the countries subject to their government nearly as the Dutch treat the Maluccas. It is the interest of the East India Company, considered as sovereigns, that the European goods which are carried to their Indian dominions should be sold there as cheap as possible and that the Indian goods which are brought from thence should bring there as good a price, or should be sold there as dear as possible. But the reverse of this is their interest as merchants. As sovereigns, their interest is exactly the same with that of the country which they govern. As merchants, their interest is directly opposite to that interest. But if the genius of such a government, even as to what concerns its direction in Europe, is in this manner essentially, and perhaps incurably faulty, that of its administration in India is still more so. That administration is necessarily composed of a council of merchants, a profession no doubt extremely respectable, but which in no country in the world carries along with it that sort of authority which naturally overalls the people, and without force commands their willing obedience. Such a council can command obedience only by the military force with which they are accompanied and their government is therefore necessarily military and despotical their proper business however is that of merchants it is to sell upon their master's account the european goods consigned to them and to buy in return indian goods for the european market it is to sell the one as dear and to buy the other as cheap as possible and consequently to exclude as much as possible all rivals from the particular market where they keep their shop the genius of the administration, therefore, so far as concerns the trade of the company, is the same as that of the direction. It tends to make government subservient to the interest of monopoly, and consequently to stunt the natural growth of some parts, at least, of the surplus produce of the country, to what is barely sufficient for answering the demand of the company. All the members of the administration, besides, trade more or less upon their own account, and it is in vain to prohibit them from doing so. Nothing can be more completely foolish than to expect that the clerk of a great counting-house, at ten thousand miles distance, and consequently almost quite out of sight, should, upon a simple order from their master, give up at once doing any sort of business upon their own account, abandon forever all hopes of making a fortune, of which they have the means in their hands, and content themselves with the moderate salaries which those masters allow them, and which, moderate as they are, can seldom be augmented, being commonly as large as the real profits of the company trade can afford. In such circumstances, to prohibit the servants of the company from trading upon their own account can have scarce any other effect than to enable its superior servants, upon pretense of executing their master's order, to oppress such of the inferior ones as have had the misfortune to fall under their displeasure. The servants naturally endeavor to establish the same monopoly in favor of their own private trade as of the public trade of the company. 
if they are suffered to act as they could wish, they will establish this monopoly openly and directly, by fairly prohibiting all other people from trading in the articles in which they choose to deal. And this, perhaps, is the best and least oppressive way of establishing it. But if, by an order from Europe, they are prohibited from doing this, they will, notwithstanding, endeavor to establish a monopoly of the same kind, secretly and indirectly, in a way that is much more destructive to the country. They will employ the whole authority of government, and pervert the administration of justice, in order to harass and ruin those who interfere with them in any branch of commerce, which by means of agents, either concealed or at least not publicly avowed, they may choose to carry on. But the private trade of the servants will naturally extend to a much greater variety of articles than the public trade of the company. The public trade of the company extends no further than the trade with Europe, and comprehends a part only of the foreign trade of the country. But the private trade of the servants may extend to all the different branches both of its inland and foreign trade. The monopoly of the company can tend only to stunt the natural growth of that part of the surplus produce which, in the case of a free trade, would be exported to Europe. That of the servants tends to stunt the natural growth of every part of the produce in which they choose to deal, of what is destined for home consumption, as well as of what is destined for exportation, and consequently to degrade the cultivation of the whole country, and to reduce the number of its inhabitants. It tends to reduce the quantity of every sort of produce, even that of the necessaries of life, whenever the servants of the country choose to deal in them, to what those servants can both afford to buy and expect to sell with such a profit as pleases them. From the nature of their situation, too, the servants must be more disposed to support with rigorous severity their own interest against that of the country which they govern than their masters can be to support theirs. The country belongs to their masters, who cannot avoid having some regard for the interest of what belongs to them, but it does not belong to the servants. The real interest of their masters, if they were capable of understanding it, is the same with that of the country, and it is from ignorance chiefly and the meanness of mercantile prejudice that they ever oppress it. But the real interest of the servants is by no means the same with that of the country, and the most perfect information would not necessarily put an end to their oppressions. The regulations, accordingly, which have been sent out from Europe, though they have been frequently weak, have upon most occasions been well-meaning. More intelligence, and perhaps less good-meaning, has sometimes appeared in those established by the servants in India. It is a very singular government in which every member of the administration wishes to get out of the country, and consequently to have done with the government as soon as he can, and to whose interest, the day after he has left it and carried his whole fortune with him, it is perfectly indifferent though the whole country was swallowed up by an earthquake. I mean not, however, by anything which I have here said, to throw any odious imputation upon the general character of the servants of the East India Company, and touch less upon that of any particular persons. It is the system of government, the situation in which they are placed, that I mean to censure not the character of those who have acted in it. They acted as their situation naturally directed, and they who have clamored the loudest against them would probably not have acted better themselves. In war and negotiation, the councils of Madras and Calcutta have, upon several occasions, conducted themselves with a resolution and decisive wisdom which would have done honor to the Senate of Rome in the best days of that republic. The members of those councils, however, had been bred to professions very different from war and politics. 
but their situation alone without education experience or even example seems to have formed in them all at once the great qualities which it required and to have inspired them both with abilities and virtues which they themselves could not well know that they possessed if upon some occasions therefore it has animated them to actions of magnanimity which could not well have been expected from them we should not wonder if upon others it has prompted them to exploits of somewhat a different nature such exclusive companies therefore are nuisances in every respect always more or less inconvenient to the countries in which they are established and destructive to those which have the misfortune to fall under their government end of book four chapter seven part g